welcome back, and here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navar and Matt Petrowski. Yeah, that's right. The Matt and Matt show. It is us. It is us. So you know what came out a while ago and we didn't talk about? Uh, I got some clouds outside my window. Wow, that's strange. I thought you lived in <laughs> Southern California. Clouds are illegal there. Yes, the FileMaker cloud, right? But, but here in Portland, clouds are everywhere, and that one kind of looks like a FileMaker icon outside <laughs> my window. FileMaker cloud. Little white puffy cumulus FileMaker icon cloud. Yep, that's right. So, so uh, you know, you're using it, right? Yep, I'm all about this thing. I have not loaded up myself. I am, uh, I am behind the times. It's all right, but you know about it, even though you've talked to people about it. Yes, I've seen the I've seen the screens. I think I'm familiar with all of the different uh, with the different attributes. I from what I know, it does not run XML, the XML API. It does not run the PHP API. Uh, you can correct me if I'm right on those. It does allow plugins, though. I've heard. Not actually sure about those things. No, that's a good question. I uh, I had heard that it didn't run those two. Um, so. I don't know. I've been just following things on the thread of people who are spinning them up. The one thing that I like the most yeah. is uh, the fact that it's uh, Linux-based. But they've not yes. made their Linux server version available, nor do I wonder if they are. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they will either. But it's, it's entirely AWS, so Amazon Web Services. You can manage it along with all of your other AWS servers, but you get a completely different admin interface, very, very different than the FileMaker admin console. Um, and so out of the gate for the minimum type that you can get, and the minimum server is a, it's what's called a T2 small, um, which is one CPU and two gigs of RAM, and then whatever storage you want. So this, the minimum size of storage. And actually what's interesting is it spins up automatically with three drives. So it must be like a, a Linux drive, a data drive, and then some teeny tiny little five gig recovery drive, or something like that. Um, mm. Well, in typical Linux is you've got a your main partition, and then a swap. Which is oh, where, there you go. Where you hit uh, any type of uh, once you exceed memory capabilities, then you're writing to disk back and forth, and you get your disk thrashing. But my gosh, some of the virtual machines now they give you. I have uh, virtual boxes over at Linode. And I had eight gigs, and I'm using, you know, maybe two or three in the web servers that I'm running. And they're like, "You've got a free upgrade. You get 12 gigs of memory." I'm like, "Well, geez, almighty!" <laughs> I mean, just a little while ago, my machine, my desktop machine, I was using 16, and I wouldn't max it out, even running all the apps constantly. Yeah, I never max out mine, and I think I have 24. Even before, even when I had much less, I never got close to maxing it out. RAM's just so cheap. Although, <laughs> server RAM's not so cheap, because that's actually the, really the main thing you pay for. So let's talk about what, uh, 
why you would want to do that over a virtual, you know, just running your own AWS virtual host. Well, so if you run your own AWS virtual host uh, with Windows Server 2012, um, then you have to, to some degree, have some expertise in Windows Server because you have to actually, it'll, it'll spin up the Windows Server instance, but out of the gate, the firewall will be turned on in Windows and you won't even be able to download FileMaker Server or anything let alone install it, because all the security settings for Windows are going to be turned up. And so you have to actually be able to figure out in Windows how and where to turn those things off. Secondly, you're going to have to f- figure out the AWS firewall settings yep. and how to, how to change those so that you can administer and set up your FileMaker server. Plus, there's all the stuff you have to do with, uh, um, there's a whole bunch of other little areas of AWS that you're going to have to get some expertise in just to fire up a Windows server. And none of those things are required for FileMaker Cloud. You can just uh, start it up, and you get you get a super simple admin page. You get an automatic dedicated email address or IP address that doesn't change. Uh, backups are included. Backups are kind of a pain if you're running a Windows server because AWS does not give you a built-in backup, like a like an unattended backup method. So um, here's here's one thing that I think this is what I've heard is the backups are not what you are used to in terms of FileMaker backups. They are not running a backup of a copy of the databases, pausing them temporarily, and then moving them to another either another drive or off-site. What it is is it's Amazon Snapshot. That's what I've heard, where basically when you... When it does a backup and it says backups, it's not backing up your individual databases to a secondary location. It's actually taking a snapshot of the VM instance. And that is your backup so that if you needed to roll back, you're going to roll back the whole machine, not just individual FileMaker files. Yeah, yeah that's true. And that, uh, that is the basic backup mechanism that I've been able to see. I haven't actually tested a restore. Mm. Um, but I think you might also be able to get regular old FileMaker backups. So with the Linux version, you don't get a remote desktop interface to the OS like you do with Windows. Right. Um, uh, all you, but you do get like SSH, so you can run terminal commands and <clears throat> stuff like that. But you get a really, really nice GUI interface that puts everything on one screen. And that's all browser-based, right? It's all browser-based, right. So just before you and I started recording today, um, I logged on and showed you my server at fmi.filemaker-cloud.com. It's also interesting that that's the default uh, fully qualified domain name is filemaker-cloud.com. Hmm. You can get your own um, IP address and your own domain name. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Uh, and that's actually, I think, very easy to do with a Windows server. Um, and also, you can use the much less expensive um, certificates with FileMaker Cloud. So the Amazon actually sells certificates from a vendor, and they're really cheap. Uh, and, you, and you get a 90-day one for free. Um, and then you can buy it after that. So that's very nice, I think. Huh. I just looked up FileMaker Cloud with no dash, and they own it. Hmm. It's interesting okay. that they chose to do FileMaker dash Cloud to use that yeah. one. Very interesting. So maybe the FileMaker Cloud ones for marketing, and the FileMaker dash Cloud for maintenance or something like that. Hmm. I haven't hit that one. I'm going to hit FileMakerCloud.com. FileMakerCloud.com can't find server. Nothing. <laughs> Not resolving to anything. 
Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting is that the smallest server that you can get from FileMaker Cloud is that T2 small machine with one CPU and two gigs of RAM. But you can actually run uh, Windows Server 2012 on a T2 Micro, which is uh, one CPU and one gig of RAM. And FileMaker Server will actually run beautifully on that. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'll backpedal a second there. FileMaker Server will run. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and support uh, and support a handful of users with no problem. Um, all the drives on all of S, on all of AWS are SSD, so they're super fast. And so that means you can turn down the RAM cache on the server to its lowest setting, which is like 128 or so megs, 128 or 256, something like that. Maybe even 64. It's really really small. No point in caching because you you have almost no memory. You only have a gig or two gigs of RAM. Um, it's very, very different than what we would have done five years ago where we had like SAS drives or something like that that were pretty fast, but they were nowhere near as fast as solid state. And we had a machine with, you know, 24 gigs of RAM. Then in that scenario, we would have set a really large RAM cache, like 10 gigs or something like that for FileMaker server to get, to get good performance. Now we would do it differently. We would say set that RAM cache to be the lowest possible number and get really, really good fast SSD drives. And then with either um, FileMaker Cloud or AWS with the Windows servers, you get the ability to upgrade your instance type really simply. So you, if, it, if it's not fast enough or you've got a really busy season, you can upgrade from a small to a medium to a large and you know, get faster, um, more processor cores and more RAM. And yeah. then when you're done, uh, change it back down to slow. So it's really, really nice to be able to tweak and and buy only exactly what you need. Yeah, when you logged into your uh, thing, it also showed that it was uh, probably taking care of the recent uh, security exploit, which is basically the Linux kernel has had a bug in it for like the past five or seven years or something like that. And so uh, CentOS, which is the open source version of Red Hat, which is uh, the corporate version of Linux, I guess you could call it the corporate version, but it's not the it's not Ubuntu or uh, Debian or something like that. It was saying you've got a an, an update and you were able to just click and apply it. You didn't have to having administrated uh, Unix boxes, Linux boxes myself, it's a totally different ball game than just click a link in a browser and then it just pauses yeah. the instance updates and then you know you're Yep, and I just log back again. in. And that update has now been applied, and my server's back online and hosting files again. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Yes, it really is. Yeah, setting one up is pretty straightforward. So, uh, but if, I will say that if you have experience with AWS, like if you used it to set up Windows machines, um, there's a point that you have to sort of not do it that way, and you have to go follow the instructions carefully that FileMaker gives you. Because if you spin it up the normal way, it won't actually get deployed as a FileMaker or cloud server. So you have to do a different way. Because they've, they've, they've partnered with a company that, um, that has a script that sets these up and sets up all the backups and uh, IP and um, databases and drives and all the other stuff, kind of using a wizard to make it easier to do. Yeah, I saw that they had like an eight-minute video or something like that. How to install your license. You could either use your own license or you could use their licenses was what I saw in the video. 
Yeah, that's right. So there's BYOL, or you can just buy licenses of FileMaker through uh, Amazon, and you pay for them hourly or daily or monthly or whatever. Hmm. And it looks like the FileMaker licenses cost considerably more than the uh, server. So if the server costs like 25 cents per day, FileMaker licenses are a buck a day, something like that. For a five-user server plus... Uh, yeah, so server plus five users. Gotcha. So I, I'm trying to get the amounts right. All I know is the, the the ratio. I didn't actually do all the math to figure out how much it would cost per year. Although I think it would, it might be the same, but it might be a little bit more expensive to do the BYOL. Or sorry, to do the licenses where you're buying them from Amazon. So, I mean, in order to try it out, I really only, I don't need to contact or go through FileMaker and actually license, I can just go spin it up anytime. Yep, you could just go spin it up. The licenses come along with the instance. You get an email with the FileMaker licenses and the link to install FileMaker on your Mac or PC. Um, then, you can, then you get a FileMaker team license, uh, FLT, and, uh, and then that's running and you're, and you're charged by Amazon as part of your Amazon account for those licenses. So Amazon's kind of reselling them, the way I understand it. And so it's not like I need to contact. Is it a is a contract based license? Like it's not yeah, an I, annual thing. I don't think so. I think it's actually kind of spin up and spin down as needed. So you can buy it for a month and then discontinue it. Huh. Now that that I may try. But I haven't. I uh, all of my customers already have licenses, so I didn't. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but um, but that's the way I understand it's supposed to work. I'll have to look into that. That would be interesting if that's what they're doing, where you don't have to go through FileMaker and you basically just can spin up a FileMaker instance and then they just get paid on the back end by Amazon or whoever's provisioning the yes. VMs. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of different products you can buy on the Amazon marketplace that are like that. Um, so there's a lot of, this is just one of many technologies on AWS, um, which is cool because you can connect FileMaker to a million other things. Uh, for other, uh, you know, things that you need to do. For example, CloudMail, which is a 360 Works product, actually already runs on another product that Amazon Marketplace offers, which is Mail. Yeah, something SES. Uh, yeah, and so there's tons of other services like that, and I think we're going to see some other FileMaker products that do that. So S3 is FileMaker's storage, and that's kind of what you get. Um, so they have two different. They have S3 and Glacier, which are their. Um, uh, a couple of their different storage products. They have many storage products, but S3 would be would be where your backups would go to. It would just take in a single image and stick it up onto an S3, and those are insanely cheap. It could be like a, a nickel or a quarter a month to have backups stored for your FileMaker server. Um, or like a much larger server might be you know, 10, 20 bucks or 100 bucks or something like that. Still really, really cheap. Um, for, for gigabytes and gigabytes of storage. Hmm. Well, I mean, this does, uh, the nice thing about this is it does partition all customers into their own little sandbox. I mean, you're not, you're clumping all of these people all onto one server and then, you know, you're not subject to some third party's lack of, uh, security focus where they don't upgrade that server for you, and then you're sitting on with everybody else, and who knows who else is letting somebody else on the machine at the same time, and your file's right there, and it's like, 
okay, is somebody going to pull my file down? At least this way, you know, when you run your instance and you're the only one running your instance and you and your company and your people are the only ones, you know you're isolated out from everybody else in terms of the sharing aspect. Right. I think that's that's the exact uh, thing that's happening is this change from shared hosting to uh, dedicated hosting because the license agreement in FileMaker 15 specifically says you can't have shared hosting. Um, so you, you have to, if you want to move to FileMaker Server 15, you have to have a dedicated server, uh, which is not a small change. So like for a lot of my clients, they've had shared hosting with ODI and they pay, you know, 30, 40 bucks a month, something like that for a, um, to put their file on a shared server. And ODI runs it beautifully. They make sure that all that security stuff is fine. They make sure that no one customer is putting stuff up there and, you know, um, taking security advantage of my system or anything like that, you know, within a reason. And so now that customer uh, has to have either contract through me or go and get their own FileMaker cloud server. They have to buy licenses of FileMaker for that server. So that's an extra few hundred bucks a year for that. And to some degree has to sort of manage the IT of it. Um, yep. You know, to know to go on and look at the admin console and see if there's a CentOS server upgrade and click to apply it. Yep, I'm I'm going to look into it. I'm going to take a peek. I mean, my, my personal server needs are so low. I mean, I've got one database that two people connect to and that's pretty much it. Then it's basically whoever's working with some other servers. Although I've got some people or one client that I've been working with lately. Oh my gosh, this is the one of the biggest FileMaker systems I've ever seen in my life. Oh really? Oh, we're talking about when you start to <laughs> scroll the graph, the graph you're scrolling for like I kid you not, 30 seconds. I mean it feels Whoa. like and I mean that's a long scroll. That is some serious graph. Yeah. <laughs> That FileMaker has to evaluate on load uh, every time the solution started up for each client. So, is this some stuff you're working on with Chris Hippolyte? Because he mentioned he's uh, you're working on some projects for him. Um, no, most of the stuff I do with Chris is uh, UI work. So I, I am outsourcing a lot of the UI development that I'll do. But there are a few people that I'll uh, look at. You know, the whole of their solution. I mean, once you get down in the weeds of a solution that somebody else has created. And you're you don't have familiarity. You're spending just as much time learning that system and how it was constructed by whoever. Sure. That you are, you know, re-engineering or refactoring a whole solution from the ground up and saying, you know, let's just approach this from a an efficiency standpoint. Mm-hmm. And usually, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, going in and you know try to decipher and keep working with what's hobbling along, but right. let alone that's I mean. Not let alone, but that's basically how a lot of FileMaker systems continue to operate. They True. don't do like parallel development or um, dual intra development where you're basically creating um, a second solution within the same FileMaker solution in mm-hmm. parallel, knowing that you're going to ditch the one. I don't oh, think I've I, seen a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people, they like really factor in all of the different ways that you can sort of segment out a FileMaker database system. I have a customer that has three whole versions of their solution, three whole sets of scripts and layouts, different iterations that are still in the file. Still, yeah, in the same file? 
Yeah, so they haven't they haven't actually removed versions one and two, even though everybody's using version three. Yeah, and all of them have totally different look and feel, function, and that'll happen if you don't have a yeah. if you don't have a plan to segment things out. Like um, this one person that I'm working with, they they planned they had built everything into one file, massive monolithic filemaker system, mm-hmm. and so you know. Through the course of discussing, you know, the fact of what the the graph has to load, uh, narrow versus wide tables, and how much data has to be transferred, when you want to take advantage of uh, like memory-based display using things like virtual list in order to display within a portal, pulling data from memory after you've loaded it is a lot more efficient than loading a bunch of records across the network when you're going to display all of those in a portal for all of the users, however many are connected. Think so about, there's a lot of performance issues with this solution then? Uh, yeah. Well, they're just trying to heavily optimize it. So they they may be going down the road that I... It may be extreme. They're creating six different clients and keeping one uh, data file. Now, it's okay, in my opinion, to have one massive large data file. And sometimes you want to segment mm-hmm. your data out. So say, for example, you've got a very large solution and there's a a common element, which is people or contacts. That many times can be its own data file. Then if you've got separate data needs, creating another data file and then having UI files ride in front of those. Mm -hmm. And many times you can keep the graph really small on the UI files, but you just have to be really comfortable with whatever type of segmentation approach you're going to take. Yeah, but, uh, they're they're going with like six different UI files, which that's a lot. So are they are those different. Uh, so it's not six copies of the same UI. It's just six different UIs for different groups of clients or something like that, or like one for the iPad, one for. Yeah, d- d- you can have different aspects of the business. So if they've got if they're shipping and fulfillment is if it's going to access the same data in the back end, they can have a shipping and fulfillment module and they build that into a filemaker file which acts as the UI and that shipping department really has nothing to do with accounting or marketing and doesn't need to see all of that stuff mm-hmm. so it's going to have a smaller graph in that UI file so that's going to load faster and just access the data that needs to do and if you keep your tables really trim and shoot for narrow tables and uh, if you have to one to one relationships you can you can get filemaker to perform really pretty well oh, for sure over the last weekend, I actually did work for a client. They had uh, their data file was eighty gigabytes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and the big the the what we discovered was they have a log table like an audit log in there that had fifty five million records in it, and that was around forty gigs. So that's a candidate for archival. You so what we did archive yes. your logs. Yeah. So what we did actually last weekend was we split the log out to its own separate data file, and archived it. And um, and then did some other maintenance on the main data file and brought its down, size down to thirty something gigs. Yeah, there you go. Which is still big, but like if if the server ever crashes, um, which it's been doing a little bit, uh, just opening and doing a checksum on a on an eighty gig file takes uh-huh. an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. So when you're down, it, like if you're down and you reboot, your minimum downtime. Uh, now we just cut the minimum downtime in half. Oh yeah. FileMaker, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, FileMaker is not a data warehousing tool. <laughs> Please come up with a, a method to offload. You can gain back a lot of your performance when you uh, treat FileMaker as the um, intermediate piece to your whole... Well, it's the 
front piece, front end and the intermediary piece, but then from data warehousing, big data, and even I would say some data analytics. FileMaker can do its charting, and you can do a lot of really good uh, graphing within web viewers, but if you need to get into heavy analytics with big data, you're going to need to offload that data you know, into something a little more robust. So something that's designed to deal with big data. Yeah. But I don't know. Who knows yeah. if eight, if if people consider eighty gigs in the world of big data, that's like that's a nothing. drop in the bucket. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> if you take a look at some of these NoSQL things, and they talk about the pricing, their their price list doesn't even start that small. <laughs> 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 they start by terabytes. Oh, dude, we're just keeping like. Can you imagine keeping the amount of information that we are keeping now and increasing the level and keeping it like forever? It's yeah, insane. True. It's insane. I really would like to know what would be really interesting is to talk to the person who's like at Google or at Yahoo and you've got all of these canonical names, these usernames that people have. And I've seen a couple of companies they release them, but like how many of them just sit there and like over the course of time you know, which ones are just going to get repurposed over and over again? Somebody's got to be doing the analytics that says, you know, okay, this particular username, this is going to get used for into 2050 or 2100. It's going to get used over and over, whatever. It's just, it's crazy. The amount of data out there. Yep. And the amount that's getting exposed. And then when you, when you have the opportunity to look at one little tiny part of it, I think we talked on the podcast a while ago about like um, one person I was talking to that had uh, a very, very small amount of stock trades for, I can't remember what period of time, um, but it wasn't a lot of time. And so little, there are micro stock trades that happen like a million per second or some just crazy amount. Uh, you know, so you, well, like a, you and I think about a stock trade, we like go and buy five shares of Apple and 10 shares of Tesla or whatever, and that's a trade. And that's something we think about and plan for, and there's thousands of dollars involved. And But that's not what most – that's like 90x percent of stock trades are teeny tiny. You know, there may be a lot of shares or something, but they're many, many times per second buying and selling, trying to just make an incredibly small return, you know, like a – Yeah, they even – large companies would even buy uh... – Facilities close to Wall Street in order to right. have the lowest latency possible. So the amount of data for something like that, it's it's like even for like a, a month, it would be billions of, of records with, you know, a date and time and stock and quantity and just a handful of records, maybe 10 fields or something like that, but billions and billions of records. Hmm. And then if you multiply that out to the actual, all the stock markets in the world, and then multiply that out to all these other things that also have huge amounts of data like that. Like every click you make at Facebook, every post you make, every click like you click on, that's a massive amount of data. Every website you've ever looked at in Google, every search you've ever done in Google, all that is data stored forever. <laughs> um, we are tracked. Yeah. Totally tracked. I thought it was funny when you think about like uh, – uh, Facebook, we're not, as users of Facebook, we're not the customer. We're the product. 
No, the more or less. Yeah, yeah, the customer of Facebook are the advertisers, the people who pay money. Yeah. But as as people who just post and consume, we're actually the product that that is being sold to the advertisers. It's a little Soylent Greenish right there. <laughs> anyway, yeah, my can't philosophize on that stuff too much. But different world. When you develop, do you develop? Uh, this is like off the wall or whatever. Because I was teaching a course the other day, and I also asked a question on Facebook. Are you developing on a on a local server in your office, or do you develop? You know, when you're creating files, do you create um, them on your local machine? I create a file on a local machine. Like when we start a brand new project, I'll make a file, I'll put a password in it, and I'll immediately upload it to a cloud server at AWS. Hmm. That's that, like the first five minutes. Because if FileMaker crashes on my computer, I don't want to have any damage to that file. And so the way that the best way to protect that is to have the file hosted. Also, I don't want to have to think about backups. And I also immediately want to have the customer being logging into that from like the first week. Oh, see, I'm the same way. I don't want to, I don't want to risk any type of uh, FileMaker crashing issue, but I hate any degree of latency. So I actually run uh, through the developer program. You get a copy of FileMaker Server. I run that mm-hmm. on my local machine. Yeah, I never do that. So my local machine is running a copy of FileMaker Server, and that's where I do all of my development. What latency? I mean, I run really you know, some pretty big databases on cloud servers, and opening the file takes a, a second or two. Getting to the graph takes a fraction of a second. Opening script manager takes no time. What, what latency? Uh, usually it's getting into the graph. I mean, a, a larger graph, when you open it over a network, you, hmm. I just don't want to experience that at all. I have so. to think about that. It may be that perceptually you're used to any type of waiting, but I mean, just when you do everything local, yeah. it's as fast as fast can be. Well, I just opened up one of our larger solutions over the cloud server, and the graph opened up in around a second. But dude, you're in Portland, and they're hosting uh, on Port- in Portland, aren't they? <laughs> uh, well, actually, they have data. That wasn't on a FileMaker cloud server. That was on a... Um, uh, a uh, Windows server. Uh. Um, but yes, you're right. Uh, I am in Portland, and the data center that I chose is US West 1, and so that's which like is in Portland. <laughs> Portland or right? Seattle, yeah. yeah. So. It is in Portland. It actually says it's in, or in Oregon anyway. It might not be in Portland. Cause <laughs> there's, a couple, there's a couple of really, really large data centers uh, in the state, kind of out in the middle of the desert. Um, and I don't know if one of those is where Amazon is. I know that Amazon, Apple, Google, and a couple of others have huge data centers in Oregon. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like uh, you know, nowadays it's so everything's so immediate. I'm sitting here talking to you on Skype. You're like however many thousands of miles up north of me. About and, one thousand. <laughs> and you're like, you talk to somebody. You're like, dude, is it? Why is it? Is it slow for you? No, it's not slow for me. Why? Because I'm sitting right next to the server, and you're like. Going through five routers and a switch that's having problems and a DNS yeah. server that's being attacked. <laughs> yeah, some yeah the things like that are a pain. Like this one customer, we have a uh, when we get on VPN to their network, um, they're on Comcast business and we're on Comcast business, and for whatever reason, about five minutes in, the the, the VPN will just disconnect. Every single person in our office who connects on that VPN has the same problem. But if we all go home and connect to our Comcast or whatever other network, it works just fine. 
And in fact, if we pick up like a little MiFi device and use it to get to the internet, then it's fine. So it's just some sort of a weird harmonic distortion or whatever between <laughs> our two Comcast business networks. It can be anything. It can be the router. It can be, I mean, I've had to do some troubleshooting lately that digs all the way down to using um, TCP dump, which is a packet sniffer. So basically oh, yeah. it'll do all your uh, packet capture and then using Wireshark in order to actually troubleshoot what the actual problem is, like actual network troubleshooting. And that, that in itself is like an art for people who know what they're looking for. Because, I mean, you're looking at thousands and thousands of packets, you know, hundreds of thousands if you're trying to troubleshoot something in particular, depending on what happens, when it happens, and stuff like that. Mine was easy. Mine was just basically a certificate was being declined. But had to do hmm. that. Yeah, you do. Technology. Always something to troubleshoot. Yep. So this uh, this march uh, away from shared and towards dedicated hosting um, and getting all of our many customers uh, off of uh, shared and towards dedicated is has been a huge learning curve, but it's been kind of fun too. And I think BioMaker Cloud is going to be pretty great um, to get that going. So there's, I guess, in each different area, I think there's actually a webinar today. Um, uh, about cloud, and there's been a bunch lately, but there's been a big kind of a rollout client thing going on. Um, hey, you had something on your desktop that I uh, saw that I was like, hey, what's that that you were using? Oh, this thing that I held up here? No, the uh, the RDP. I use, uh, I, use oh, Mi- yeah, yeah. I use Microsoft's remote desktop, but you were using something else. Yeah, so I, a client turned me on to this thing called Jump Desktop. So this is going to be our official It's Not FileMaker segment here. <laughs> Remember when we used to do those years ago? Yep, yep. So Jump Desktop is a, I don't know if I bought it, but I got it on the um, App Store. Um, it might have been something I paid for, a small amount of money. And kind of like Remote Desktop, it allows me to just keep a list of all of the servers I connect to, and then I double-click and I get... Um, RDP or um, VNC access to control that box. But what I love is it keeps the actual uh, addresses and of the servers I connect to in Dropbox. So kind of like um, kind of like one password uses Dropbox to synchronize everything. This synchronizes everything. So if I add a new server to my list, um, like I spin up a new server for a new customer and I get a remote desktop to it. And I start working on its backup system, and then I go home. When I go home and I launch Jump Desktop, it, it shows me that new server. Uh, the password, though, is still stored in my keychain. So I do have to type the password in at home, and then the password is stored locally. But I think that's the same way the remote desktop client works from Microsoft. But what I love about this one is that, yeah, that central storage uh, that syncs and also the ability to, to do VNC and RD, RDP in one uh, tool. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, I think it's at jumpdesktop.com. Funny enough, if you go into the app store right now and you do use the search, I'm getting an invalid URL from the Apple App Store app. But I can search for it on uh, on the web. Jump Desktop is a secure and reliable remote desktop RDP and VNC. Huh. Huh. Yeah, I'm actually also not able to get to the app store right now. Does it say invalid URL for you? 
No, I got a, a App Store's offline error message. Ah. Cannot connect to the App Store. Well, okay. It actually shows me stuff, and I can browse things, but if I try to do a search, it didn't work. Yeah. The Internet's falling down ever since the attack on uh, DYN. Yeah, on Friday. Yeah, that was bad. It didn't actually affect us. Uh, as far as I know, none of our servers were not available. Um, and I'm not a big Twitter user. Twitter, I guess, was down for a part of the day. And I heard part of Amazon was, too, which means part of AWS must have been affected. Yeah, I, uh, I, Twitter was, I was... I get a lot of my notifications through Twitter. And I read that a lot of the vectors of attack are actually uh, like smart devices in the house that ha haven't been patched and can't be patched. So they have some SSH vulnerability. So if you've got some, like a smart refrigerator or something like that, um, that that device can be hacked and then used as a, uh, as a vector or as an attack bot, basically, for these distributed denial of service. Yep. It's pretty crazy. Which, uh, it's interesting. And there's billions of those devices out there that can't be patched because you don't really think of them as computers. Which made me kind of wonder how this is going to be solved. It's going to be fun to watch. <laughs> well, over time, there, some consortium is going to say, you know, you can't release some type of piece of hardware and the user can't just keep the default password. They're forced, no matter what, to set the password or something like that. So, I mean, that's the, that's the biggest problem in the whole of all networking is basically just laziness and negligence. You're just, you're, you want the money more so you don't take the time to make it so that the UI basically says you have to actually make this something that somebody can't just guess and use as the default because we've stuck the sticker on the bottom that says it's admin and admin. <laughs> right. I mean, that happened to FileMaker. So, you know, they had to change their policy. And then 15, the default now is set. You can't even upload a database with admin yeah. and a blank password. Oh, that actually it's it another thing. So on cloud, on FileMaker Cloud, not only that, but it actually puts in uh, encryption at rest automatically. You you can't host a database that's not encrypted at rest. I, does it I'm prompt sure. you? It automatically just does it. So the, uh, when you upload the file, it automatically adds that password in and it, so that the file, when it's uploaded, is actually encrypted. Ooh, that's sort of scary, though. If you don't have the key in your own secure store somewhere, like a password keeper or something like that. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry if some, you know, I don't care about redundancy or whatever. I mean, okay, so maybe Amazon's running their data and then they're running it off-site as a backup like 50,000 miles away. Sure, that may make me feel a little bit comfortable, but even still, me not having the key to my own file if you've put on AES encryption... Mm -hmm. I'd like that. The <laughs> thank you, please. <laughs> yeah, so it, it would be your the encryption at rest feature is amazing, but sets you up for like if you lose that key, you're done. You are done. There is no opening that file ever, unless it's like the year 2020, and you want to, <laughs> and they've got computers that'll run enough hashes on it. Yeah, <laughs> but geez, yeah, wow, We're not there yet? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, I might be wrong on that one too. 
<laughs> but they, I do definitely remember it did that. And the files that I have hosted up there are uh, encrypted at rest as well. So yeah, FileMaker is definitely taking the security thing seriously. And I think that's good because like if you switch, just like upgrade a server from 14 to 15 and then, and then all of a sudden discover that some of the files won't open because you created an account for a user and you didn't set a password for that user and that user is a full access user. Yeah, no, I don't want that file to open up. I want to fix that problem. And so it's a good highlight to, to find those things. Yeah. Cool deal. Well, you got anything else? Well, that's the big stuff, man. Just kind of plodding along. Yeah. Working on client systems, which has been awesome. Me too. I'm uh, going to actually leaving today to go uh, talk at a uh, little training that Chris is doing. You're doing a training too, I saw. Oh, yeah. Well, we do four a year. Okay. Yeah. Chris has got a really big one he was talking about. He's got like 20, 30 people coming, something like that. Yeah, it was 26, or is I think. It 26 people? Is it online, or is it going to be um, happening at a at a place? No, it's in L.A. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm driving up there and uh, training at that one. And I just did one that was uh, 10 people online. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm planning on doing another one of those at the end of, um, end of November, beginning of December. Is when uh, our, next, our next podcast episode is actually going to be with Chris. We have an appointment to be talking. Uh... Very soon, I'm nice. trying to remember the day. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, I had a conversation with him last week, and we're like, "Hey, we got a podcast, man. Let's talk. Let's find a subject and compare notes." <laughs> I'll tell him at dinner tonight. I'll say, "Hey, this is what you need to say. <laughs> Come to my training." <laughs> he he outcompetes everybody for training. Uh, the voice of Linda.com for yeah, maker. That's yeah. huge. It did turn out to be a good deal. Very good deal. And who who saw the huge, ridiculous success of Lynda.com uh, getting acquired by LinkedIn and all the other stuff? That's, oh, I wish I had. I know. Me too. I would have trained <laughs> on more than just FileMaker. Yeah. But it's great. Yeah. FileMaker's been good to me. Yeah, it has. Me too. Can't, can't, can't complain. complain. It's really interesting for those of us that, uh, if you're listening to this, I mean, you're listening to two people that basically at some point way a long time ago said, oh, I can make a living doing FileMaker. And, I mean, you haven't done any, what have you? When was the last time you did something other than FileMaker? Oh, wow. Um, in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. I left I was I left college in 95. So, I've been doing it ever since then. It's been it's been a really big part even when I was doing other things for a living, like I worked as an IT guy. The major thing that I did by the time I left that company was FileMaker. And I worked at a computer store like in the 80s actually doing like digital video stuff and general IT stuff and did a lot of FileMaker. Hmm. Jeez. So and, I've been, yeah, since like probably 87 or something like that, 86, I don't know. So it's the next 10 years. Who knows? It's going to be interesting. It's, uh, it's definitely, I mean, it, it keeps holding its own, but it's get, it continually gets more and more competition. 
So, you know, their market gets smaller just because the market at large keeps getting wider and wider with more other stuff. That's true. But as I've been, you know, old guys like us kind of get uh, nostalgic about those old days. But when I'm at an Apple store and presenting, uh, it's the most important thing that I need to be talking about is not that old history, but it's the iPad app that I built for someone yesterday. You know, it's like, here's this business problem that came to me and we use this tool that's modern and fresh and good and use all these new things that I've learned recently that are all features in the current version of FileMaker. And this is this is how we meaningfully solve this problem as though I had just learned FileMaker in the last year. That's much more important uh, and, and really hard to do uh, is to stay relevant and fresh. But that's so important, I think. So what would you like... What would you feel if they basically rebranded? Would you feel like it's like, okay, we're entering into a new era, or would you feel like some sense of loss? Because I think I they need to rebrand. Yeah, I think they should too. Um, I mean, I suggested, I, what I was kind of hoping that they would do is sort of leave the FileMaker legacy stuff kind of as it was, and then bring some radical new tools on, and then a way for us to learn those things, but still sort of under the FileMaker umbrella and still with a path. Um, and they did that on the low end with Bento, and I was kind of hoping they'd do it on the high end, like a much more powerful tool that had um, the ability to do data warehousing and the, the ability to do terabyte files and the ability to have a thousand concurrent users um, and some of these other things that, you know, maybe I don't really need because I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy handling uh, solutions for five to a hundred users. Yeah. That that's a, a lovely business, uh, and we can do really me- meaningful and fun projects in that space all day for a long time. Um, so you know, I wish for things that are different, but I'm pretty happy with what I have too. Yeah, yep. I keep uh, I keep using it. It's it's crazy when it's you can get down and you know there's other things that can process data faster, but then. It's just you can't manipulate and work it into something that's usable as quickly as you can FileMaker. Yep. Um, I, can, I can write Python scripts that will basically rip the crud out of data in lightning speed. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, okay, then I've got that raw data. I've got no UI to that data. I have to now go pick something that I'm going to build a UI, which many times is, is browser-based. Mm-hmm. But with FileMaker, you're just, you just start dragging stuff in this layout and you're instantly being able to put a face on that data and make it usable and it's just there's there's nothing that i've ever found that's as fast like this whole idea to ipad thing which we've been doing and i'm hoping to do a lot more of to be able to go to a client um meet them in the apple store and say oh yeah you have an idea for something and be able to do a wireframe and a meaningful solution in 10 hours um you're not really creating an entire app for them in that amount of time. But you can you can wireframe something and have a really, really beautiful proof of concept that's functional, a functional demo. Uh, and then finish the project out in another 10 or 100 hours or whatever it takes, depending on what they're trying to do. Um, that's awesome. I don't know what else can really do that. And it's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't either. I mean, I've, I, I know there are other environments that allow you to do drag and drop, 
but they still come with some more overhead than what FileMaker has. At least, uh, and the fact that it just, it's all, I always bemoan the whole, we've got to go through five dialogues just in order to enter some code, you know, in like a, a web viewer is a bad example, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. You've got to go in the script dialogue and then go into a script step dialogue. And then that dialogue has a specify button and you're going down into that dialogue. <laughs> you're mm, like, sure. Dialogue hell. But if maybe, but you can also just have so a, easy, you can also just make a button bar and then boom, you're in code right there. <laughs> and that's a that's a code layout object which we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah, they have got they have gotten better, but there's many different areas from a developer's perspective that they could uh streamline even more, which would be really nice. But I wonder if that would just lose their appeal for um I don't know if they're still going after knowledge workers or not, but the whole knowledge worker thing where you've got somebody who doesn't necessarily approach things from a developer mindset, but they can get something done. I never know if that's like uh, FileMaker's Achilles heel or not, though, because those people end up creating the apps that get entrenched into organizations because the users are solving problems for themselves, but they've created a, you know, not very well-architected solution that all of a sudden becomes mission critical. And they're like, well, why is this slow, slow? Well, let's go in and take a look. Oh, wow. Okay, you can tell this was created by somebody that was learning FileMaker as they went. And it's mm-hmm. nice for them to learn, but from the outset, creating something that can be maintained is uh, a lot more appealing. I think that's why IT people maybe don't like it, is because users can actually get in there and, and, and solve their own problem. And because they don't have the experience to know how to do data modeling right, they're making things that are great for the first year and then don't scale and cause problems. On the other hand, I love that that exists because I can find those people and say, oh, well, you're 90% of the way there. Let's spend some time, and in a couple of weeks, we'll get you to the last 10%, get those performance problems fixed, break out your data into the right kind of tables, give you an unmodern interface that's not um, – what's the term we use for the different colored buttons? Angry, angry fruit salad. Angry fruit salad, yeah. We, <laughs> we, see, we see angry fruit salad every week. More than, more than <laughs> enough of that going around. It's it's pretty great, uh, you know. Buttons with um, all different colors and with uh, with very with with um, gradients that go some left to right, some top to bottom, some top left to bottom right, uh, all on the same layout. Yeah. With yeah. four pixel borders. <laughs> Dude. But on the other hand, you can walk in. You know that that solution can run the customer's business beautifully and help them grow and. Differentiate. Yep. All right, my friend. Well, cue, cue the ending music, man. That's yeah, good. that's <laughs> that's already been cued. It's uh, being slowly faded up. Slowly faded up. You've got your your buttons. You didn't do any sound effects this today either. I didn't. That's because. Um, wait. Oh, I, hold on. I've got a call. Oh, I got a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably, that's probably Chris Sipolite. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> All at the end. Well, sir, it's always great to talk to you. Let's let's do this in two weeks. Or sooner, if we uh, find the time. Regular. Got to do it regular. All right. See ya. Okay.